Hello, this is Digital Accessibility, the people behind the progress. I'm Joe Walensky, the creator and host of this series. And as an accessibility professional myself, I find it very interesting as to how others have found their way into this profession. So let's meet one of those people right now and hear about their journey. All right, well, here we are with another episode of this podcast where I have the great opportunity to talk to accessibility practitioners. And today I am pleased to be chatting with Rochelle Bradley Montgomery. Hello, Rochelle. How are you today? Hello, I'm well. How are you today? Everything's going pretty good. It's a pretty nice day here in my home office area in Vashon, Washington, which is near Blinks. Seattle headquarters. Uh, where are you talking to me from? I am talking to you from just outside Leesburg, Virginia, which is near Washington, and it is a rainy, rainy day here. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, chat with me uh, about your experience in accessibility, and uh, probably the best place to start is if you could tell us a little bit about uh, your current position and what you're involved with today. Sure. So I am uh, very fortunate to be doing a couple different things in accessibility today. I am a co-chair of the Accessibility Guidelines Working Group. Um, so that is the group that helps set the standards for WCAG. Um, I am in the library at the Library of Congress. I am a digital accessibility specialist, and I am also the director of a charity called Accessible Community. Um, and it all three are just a fantastic balance of getting to work in different areas and with different size organizations uh, across the accessibility field. Well, it's okay. So right off the bat, it looks like uh, you're pretty busy with a, a lot of things that you're involved with. Uh, but on the uh, the Library of Congress uh, part, I mean, I think uh, most people are familiar with uh, what that uh, part of the government is about, but maybe talk a little bit about what uh, you know what your position consists of at the Library of Congress. Sure, and so I can't speak officially for them right now, but um, for my position, it's really around um, helping create you know, accessible experiences for employees and for patrons at the library. It's very similar to kind of comparable positions and organizations anywhere where you're working to try to improve the accessibility of applications, of content, um, of all of that uh, digital experience of kiosks uh, to make sure that experience really is good for people with all sorts of different types of disabilities. Well, uh, you know, we come back and, and talk about more of the current things that you're working on, but one of the things I like to do in this series is uh, explore the paths that people found that take them to uh, what they're doing in accessibility. So where does it start out for you? Are there any uh, certain milestones uh, that started to uh, put you on that path? Yeah, I, I have a funny story in that I started really young in kind of disability education and accessibility. I started actually in middle school uh, with a a local puppeteering troupe that would go around and teach about disability at different schools in our area. And I did that for probably six or seven years. Uh, it was a fantastic opportunity at the time. It was uh, really pre the digital age. And so it was one of the greatest ways of connecting with kids in particular um, and teaching about people who were different and just um, that different abilities didn't mean 
it wasn't scary. It wasn't something that they had to worry about. It was something they really could um, treat as normal. And, and it was such a foundational education um, to be able to participate. You had to pick a couple different areas of, of disability studies and, and really master them. You had to research them and keep up with everything because you had to be able to answer questions on all of it. And so that, that really started a passion. Um, I kind of moved away from it for a little bit, uh, but then really got into usability engineering and working in libraries and, and then ended up right back kind of in the same space, working in the usability space, um, which overlapped a lot with accessibility. So. Uh, that's how I got started. From there, I really kind of mixed, and it, it was kind of like I worked at the MITRE Corporation for a number of years and got that opportunity to do usability, but then kind of touch in accessibility. And then it, it kind of changed over time. So I started a lot early on with a lot of usability work and a little bit of accessibility work, and then kept going until I was doing a lot of accessibility work and less usability work, which is, is really where I am now. And so, so it, it, if I uh, sounds like what you're saying is that your uh, educational foundation was uh, library science. That was an area that that you studied and decided to pursue. It was actually my my bachelor's was in art history and historic preservation, and we can talk about <laughs> how that ties in because it does really really well. Um, but then when I went back for my master's degree, I went in information science at University of Illinois and got to study with um, some fantastic people there, both in emerging technology and in usability, um, and, and particularly in information systems, and then transitioned uh, while working to go to University of Maryland and got to study with Jennifer Priest and, and Ben Schneiderman, among other fantastic professors in both fields. Um, so I was really, really fortunate to have some amazing people who were inspiring and, and exciting to work with throughout that education. Yeah, that's great. I've, uh, I had the opportunity to meet uh, uh, Ben Schneiderman a long time ago, and that was, uh, was a great conversation. Um, also, I went to the University of Illinois, so I have a connection there. But was it, at, uh, was it when you were uh, doing your uh, art history or uh, master's program that you discovered the uh, opportunities to volunteer in the uh, uh, with the uh, program that you mentioned with with the, the what was it puppet the, with the uh, puppeteering that was actually I did that all through high school and earlier I kind of stepped away from it when I went to college because I went away to college and couldn't continue doing it um, in college I was doing a little less of of the accessibility and usability work until I kind of came back in where I was um, kind of getting involved in that was really around uh, the historic preservation area because I was studying how do you take buildings and update them and still really retain the, the historic essence of them and convey that in a neighborhood. But at the same time, accessibility of physical spaces was a really big part of that because if you're gonna update a building, you have to think about all the ADA uh, applications to it. And we really, a lot of the studies were around, okay, if you take a community and you're helping to revitalize it, how do you think about all the pieces you need to put together? And that that ended up forming a foundation of a lot of what I do now with charity I run, where it's thinking about how do you, how do you think about disability inclusion from a community point of view? And so it's, I think one of the things I've learned in looking back over the arc of my career is that each little piece, even though it doesn't sometimes seem relevant long-term, it really becomes critical and foundational and, and you end up leaning on it in a way you didn't quite expect to. 
And so then uh, as you moved forward, what was kind of the next stage that uh, aligned with your accessibility interests? Yeah, so after, um, I guess after my bachelor's degree, it was really around uh, going to Illinois and with Champaign-Urbana's iSchool and studying technology and how, how to engage in technology. I had, had worked at Emory University's library down in Atlanta and was working in technology space there and really got interested in how do you create um, a library user experience that was good for every patron, which is what led me to go to University of Illinois. Uh, and really study that in, in more depth. And so getting to uh, really understand user studies and how you think about technology in new ways, it was exciting and kind of fun fun time to learn. And then I was able to take that back to my job at MITRE after I had moved to that and really start working in that area um, in, in greater detail and depth. And uh, then did that work, uh, did that offer you the opportunity for uh, some type of, uh, of training or, or uh, knowledge acquisition about accessibility or, or how did you come around to uh, filling out your, uh, what you knew about it? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So I'd, I'd studied accessibility some in uh, my master's program, but not at the depth. I really needed to be fantastic at it, like to really grow. And, and so I love your question, just in that I feel like we get a kind of base knowledge of accessibility, but until you're really hands on day in and day out, it's it's hard to know. Um, it's hard to really feel confident about it. And even when I went to teaching, um, I had done a, a decent amount of it, but again, gaining that confidence to teach. And that's really where I feel like um, my background and the depth of my background became really um, extensive because in teaching accessibility and teaching usability together um, and then very particularly teaching accessibility people start asking questions and when you get a huge diversity of questions you have to learn how to answer um, you end up building your expertise a great deal um, so that's part of it um, i had also i got an opportunity to go study at, uh, at the accessibility program at utah web aim um, just and it was interesting. I had been really working in depth in it for a while, but just the ability to go and talk with people who had been doing it um, for a longer time and get that comparison and just double check did I actually understand some of the subtleties that I wasn't sure about um, in some ways. And I'm finding this in, in a mentoring program I run too. It's like you get started, you learn a certain amount. And then you kind of get to a point where the ability to check in with someone senior and double check yourself gives you the confidence to kind of continue to learn. And I think some of that is just because accessibility is such is a field with such a huge depth of knowledge to it. And there's so many specialties and subtleties to it. Um, again, that ability to connect with other professionals, I would say is really when I feel like I went from, yes, I do accessibility to yes, I really know accessibility and I feel very, very confident in it. Um, so it was that, um, then conferences, especially when I was learning, I think conferences were a huge way of learning um, beyond uh, just, you know, trying to follow the specs or read what people were publishing about it. And so that was another great opportunity. And you were just uh, uh, doing some work at the recent CSUN conference, right? I saw you there. You were uh, yeah. 
working on the uh, escape room. And was it that you designed that activity with a colleague? Yeah, so one of the my principles is that especially in teaching accessibility, the more hands on and the more fun you can make it the more you can cover all the different ways of learning the better. And so the accessible escape room came out about because Matt Ader and I were having lunch one day and and were co teaching. Um, and he said, wow, this weekend I, I spent $20 to sit and take a nap while my daughter and her friends did an escape room because none of it was accessible. And I was like, wow, we should make an accessible escape room. <laughs> and we joked about that probably for a year where we'd go back and forth and whenever we'd see each other, we'd go, wow, are we going to make the accessible escape room? I don't know. And after a year, it was like, you know, we've been talking about this for a while. We should just go ahead and do it. Um, so it's very much a, a labor of love. It's done by Vespero and accessible community and um, the MITRE Corporation. We went to a local escape room. It's called Escape Room Loco and said, hey, we really want to do this. Can you help us? And, and they walked us through how to do it. And, uh, and then we built it and we rolled it out and COVID hit. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. it wasn't quite the CSUN rollout we were hoping for that year. Uh, mm -hmm. We have a virtual version of the first one and the physical one that'll be going to different conferences. But I have so enjoyed that activity because it is a chance to think about accessibility on so many levels when we're creating it. But then the joy of watching people learn accessibility through that, or people who have never had a chance to do an escape room get to do an escape room because it's accessible, it's just fantastic. It's one of my favorite activities to do every year. Well, uh, yeah, there are a lot of other things I, I wanted to ask you about. So you've had the opportunity to work with uh, advocacy organizations. Uh, you've also worked with uh, uh, the uh, W3C in, in uh, continuing to uh, grow our uh, recommendations and best practices in that area. And then you've uh, done a lot of work in, in the government. And so um those are a lot of different things a lot of work going on there I, is there any one that uh you know that you know you you feel particularly uh you know has moved things forward are there some areas that you've enjoyed more maybe some other things uh you know less so what you know what is what's it been like uh working in all those different areas I am I am so fortunate in the diversity I've been able to uh, achieve in my career. Like it's just been a fabulous uh, chance to work in a lot of places. Uh, if I had to pick, I think I would talk about how honored and how fantastically educational the opportunity to work on and then eventually co-facilitate the COGA task force was in the W3C. So I did that for, I think, two years um, before I, I moved on to co-chair the, the accessibility guidelines working group. And it is an amazing group of people tackling, I think, one of the harder challenges in accessibility. The cognitive space uh, is really, it's hard to make measurable and repeatable and get into standards. And so while WCAG provides support for cognitive disabilities, it is not at the depth of other disability areas. And so we, um, they had already created a great deal of content for a document that came out, I guess, about a year ago now called Making Content Usable for People with Cognitive and Learning Disabilities. And uh, the process of getting that document to publication and again just working with 
such an amazingly talented group of people on on that topic was was a really neat experience. Um, standards work is definitely not for everybody. It is a very detailed and um, very uh, nitpicky in some ways work. But I think I think that document really provides a foundation for cognitive accessibility and what we can do. Um, and with my background in usability and accessibility, the cognitive space kind of fits in between the two uh, really, really well. And so I think that was was probably one of the neatest experiences I've had to date. Well, I yeah, I enjoyed my work, uh, you know, quite a while back with uh, the World Wide Web Consortium. I, I enjoyed it and, and uh, found it very interesting. I think from the outside, you know, uh, people may think kind of things happen slowly and to an extent that they do. But also, I'm not sure people understand, you know, what an amazing collaboration you have between uh, not just corporate interests, but ac academic uh, government, different nation states ar around the world, NGOs, uh, advocacy organizations uh, of all types. Uh, you, and you, you look at all the things that the W3C has put out uh, with their recommendations, and essentially uh, the, the modern web in a way has been built around those things that have been established. And the WCAG uh, is certainly one important part of that. Yeah, it's um, it, it. I think you're right. I think there is a bit of a black box into what standards work looks like, and I agree with you that that balance between industry and uh, individual disabilities and academia uh, and government it, it really is is an interesting conversation that goes on to make sure that that everyone's needs are met to the best ability possible. Uh, when you put out a standard. And again, that process is, is neat to look at if you have kind of the, the desire to go through the standards process. Well, uh, you know, kind of, I, I think, uh, does that bring us more or less, uh, you know, up to date with what you're currently involved in? Um, if you don't mind, I, I'll talk a little like that accessible community just because oh, yeah, I think definitely. that's been uh, at least a personal passion um, I worked in big organizations uh, and government for a number of years, as you mentioned. And then, gosh, I guess it's about five years now. Everything with COVID time has started to feel a little off, but um, I came down with chemical sensitivity. So I hadn't had a disability myself. I'd been working in the space, but was not myself disabled. And chemical sensitivity is a really, it's an odd disability in that um, COVID actually helped me a great deal. I'm working from home. I'm not exposed to chemicals. If I'm not exposed to chemicals, I'm not sick. Um, but if I get near somebody who has perfume or I get in an, an elevator um, with somebody unexpectedly or I walk into a bathroom that's been cleaned, I can be, be sick for a number of days and not really able to work. And it kind of changed my life. It really, I'd been looking a lot at the digital space. And when that happened, all of a sudden I couldn't go shopping anymore. I can't shop for clothes because almost every dressing room, at least women's dressing room has um, scented products in it. So I just shift all of my, my kind of consumer behaviors to, to function and, and work. And it made me realize just how much of our community isn't accessible. And it's kind of one of those things I knew, but didn't know at a, at a personal and deep level. And 
it also really made me realize that a lot of the accessibility work is going on with the really big organizations, not the small ones. And the ones I needed to interact with are the mom and pop shops, the restaurants, the, the clothing stores in my neighborhood, the churches I want to go to, whatever those small organizations are, my kids' clubs, my PTO, right? And, and there's just not a lot of support for that. And the end result of talking with a lot of people was to found this particular um, charity, which the goal is to figure out ways that we can build bridges to help communities, not necessarily the big organizations, but the small organizations and communities that can't afford the work. And so it's very much a, a and labor of love, it's something that happens at the pace it happens, but we just put out a tool that really will facilitate crowdsourcing, accessibility reviews, or um, long-term will let people share their experiences. Like when I go to a store, my kids go in first and come out. Yeah, mom, you can go in, you can't. To be able to share that or to be able to learn from somebody else who has chemical sensitivity, which store I can go in, where I'm going to be successful before I spend the time driving there, that's huge for me. And that's not something that digital accessibility will help me with one bit other than this crowdsourcing approach. Um, but talking with a number of other people with disabilities, that ability to share information, that bridge has not really been built yet. And so trying to provide that. And at the same time, we, we've stood up a mentoring program. So people who are stuck in um, that quasi place that I've learned about accessibility, but I don't really feel confident in my knowledge or I haven't gotten a lot of hands-on experience, can go help one of these organizations that can't afford it. At the same time, they're getting work with, uh, getting an opportunity to work with someone more senior. And so it creates a win-win-win. And I love win-win-win situations. And so just trying to set up as many of those as possible and facilitate that has absolutely become my mission going forward. And uh, is the work that you're doing there something that, uh, you know, others can, can learn about if we add a link to the show notes? Is that something that's open for others to get involved with? It absolutely is. We take volunteers. We have the mentoring program if people want to um, sign up to learn, but we would love as much help as anyone wants to. It is completely volunteer organization, so we are reliant on, on people and we would love people to join us. All right. Well, yeah, excellent. And I, uh, you know, uh, let's see. Uh, tying into one of the uh, things that that you mentioned. Um, well, I think uh, you might have a similar experience with me, uh, where uh, yeah, I've been involved in this area for about twenty some years. And you know, when I look at kind of where we are with things in, in some ways it's kind of amazing looking at how technology has transformed things and and even now i feel like uh, the accessibility profession is is growing with more and more people uh, getting involved uh, yet you know if i think back 20 years ago i i still remember like thinking we would have been farther along yeah by now, and and you know, there's always more that you can do. But I was just kind of wondering what your ideas were in that. You know, if there are some areas that you wish we could have made more progress, or ones that you're particularly interested in uh, in pursuing, in addition to the community activity yeah. you mentioned. Um, I do think, and this drives some of what we're doing with accessible community as well. I do think creating carrots for accessibility and not just sticks. I think somehow finding. Um, good ways to have people be able to market accessibility and know the value of being able to reach out to the disability community. When I go talk with small organizations, that that is the number one thing I hear. They're like, 
we're happy to do the accessibility work, but how do we actually tell people we've done it? Um, so finding that sweet spot of marketing, I think, is a big driver that our community has to figure out. Um, but yeah, like you, I, I would like to be further along. I feel like there's this amazing dichotomy between extreme innovation in coming up with assistive technology of different types, but then maybe not as much innovation and in how do we use technology that isn't quite so exciting or how do we fund people in thinking about technology that isn't so exciting um, to really help improve accessibility as a whole. So that that funding and that focus on what feels a little more everyday but could make a big difference, I feel like that's something that we haven't quite figured out. Um, another pattern I've really seen is um, you get some some commitment to accessibility and you start to make a lot of momentum and then it it almost feels like it's tied to certain individuals and then things kind of ebb and flow based on how individuals move in and out of organizations and figuring out ways to better systematically fix accessibility in the mindset of organizations um, and some places are very successful at that and some people aren't but but really having good strategy around that i think is the other other big area i'd love to see well i um i uh enjoyed all of your uh great comments and your perspectives uh from all the time that you've been in, involved in that so uh uh, Rochelle, thank you very much for taking this time to uh, share that with us, and uh, hopefully we'll I'll see you again soon at a, another event. Thank you. I really look forward to seeing you again, and thank you for the opportunity to talk with you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Joe Walensky, and as host of the Digital Accessibility Program, I like to keep the focus on our amazing guests. But I'm always excited about my role as Accessibility Director at Blink, the producer of this program, and I'd like to share that with you. Blink is the world's leader in evidence-driven design, and we work with a wide variety of clients. Founded in Seattle, we also have offices in Boston, New York, Austin, San Diego, and San Francisco. Our stated mission is to make technology human. Embracing inclusive design and accessibility brings all of us closer to that mission. We bring accessibility in every one of our projects. Our philosophy is that each of our practitioners should understand how accessibility applies to their own work. Accessibility is not a separate department or activity for us. Our researchers, designers, and developers all employ accessibility principles at every stage. If you have a need for research and design services, Blink is a partner with a full-time commitment to making your product or service accessible and a great experience for all of your customers. Some of the specific areas where we can help, using research to better understand the needs of your customers with disabilities, innovating to make sure your accessibility is the best in class design, we can move existing designs to development in a sprint. And maybe most importantly, we provide a turnkey transformation to an accessible site or app. Of course, compliance status is something that we always include as part of the service. If any of this is of interest, please get in touch with me directly at joe at blinkux.com. That's J-O-E at 
B-L-I-N-K-U-X.com. Thank you. And please take a moment to rate our program in whatever app you use.